Now, sometimes there are those who will say things like, we need to go back to the first century church. As you all know, they're not talking literally. Like, you know, we have to jump into a time machine and go back, a DeLorean with a flux capacitor or something like that, and get back to the first century, 45 AD, somewhere like that. What they basically mean is the first century church had a way of operating that we don't see today. And we need to go back to the first century church, and the implication is the church was so much better then than it is now. Well, one of the things you might want to ask such a person when they say such things, or if you find your own mind saying it, what first century church would you want to go to? There were different options for you. Would you want to go to the church of Corinth? That, that church that for a time tolerated and celebrated their toleration of a man who was having a sexually immoral relationship with his stepmother. That was Corinth. Would you want to go to Laodicea? The church that was lukewarm. And that if they stayed lukewarm, Jesus said that he would spew them from his mouth. Would you want to go to Sardis? That church that had a reputation of being alive, but even though it had that reputation, it was dead. And there were a few names, not many names, but a few names in Sardis who hadn't defiled their garments. Would you want to go to the churches of Galatia? Those churches in Galatia that although they heard the gospel, they were drifting from the gospel because they were false teachers who had infiltrated and they started to try to add works to grace. They started to try to add law to justification alone by faith. Would you want to go to those now, don't get me wrong, there are churches, as we go through the New Testament, that are solid. You look at Paul's epistle to the Philippians, and it looks as though the biggest problem that they had in the church of Philippi was a disagreement between two godly women. You look at the, churches, uh, the church of Thessalonica, they were an example to many churches. Paul uses that kind of language in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. They were an example to the churches in Macedonia, Achaia, but also in every place. I give that litany of examples to say this. Sometimes the good old days aren't as good as we might think. And to remind you that then, like now, there were different churches, different levels of health in different churches. If you went to the church of Philadelphia, it wasn't like the church of Pergamos. If you went to the church of Laodicea, it wasn't like the church of Thessalonica. There were different churches with different strengths, different weaknesses. Some didn't get a rebuke from Jesus in the book of Revelation. Some did. Five did and two didn't. There were different churches. But with that being said, if you had to choose a time that actually gets close to a kind of idyllic picture of what the church is meant to look like, it would be right here in the very early days of the New Testament church following Pentecost. Right here in Acts chapter 2, we have a little snapshot of the beautiful beginnings of the New Testament church. They were going to have their issues. You're going to see it. We're going to read on in the book of Acts. And even in this beautiful church, we're going to get to Acts chapter 6, and we're going to see they had their issues as well. But what we have here is a beautiful picture, a kind of idyllic picture of what the church can look like and ought to strive to. So what we want to do is this week, and Lord willing, two weeks from now, we want to linger over this picture in the hopes that this blessed description might increasingly describe us as individuals, but also as a local church. This, by the way, when we get to Acts chapter 2, verse 42, is an opportunity for reformation. Reformation for us as a corporate church to say, where can we get sharper as a church? And reformation for us as individuals who gather here. 
to kind of use Acts 42, Acts 2.42 as a kind of checklist to say, how am I doing with these things? Am I committed to these things, even as the early church was? We'll get there soon enough. A little bit of context to create before we get into our uh, text for today. Let me briefly remind you that we have completed our study of Peter's Pentecost sermon, as it's often referred to. He gave the call. He preached Christ. He gave lines of evidence for Christ. He did miracles in your midst. He died according to the predetermined plan of God. He rose from the grave, and that rising from the grave was in the fulfillment of the Old Testament Scriptures. And we are witnesses to this. We've seen with our own eyes the risen Christ. He has given now the call to repent and be baptized. He has told them to call upon the name of the Lord, and they will be saved. And as many as call upon the name of the Lord to be saved are those who are called by the Lord. And now, having given that foundation, we get to see the beginnings of the reaction. We begin in Acts chapter 2, verse 40, where we read, And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So as I've told you some time back, Peter's sermon and everything that he said to the people isn't completely recorded here in Acts chapter 2. Just look at the beginning of verse 40. And with many other words. As I told you a few weeks back, I'll say it to you again. You know, some of you, you can look at what's often referred to as Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2. And you say, George, when I read through this, it takes me all of three minutes long. I don't understand why you're up there for 45 to 60 minutes. <laughs> Something's wrong. <laughs> and I would call your attention to Acts chapter 2 verse 40. <laughs> and with many other words. Many other words. I mean, you could look at Acts chapter um, 20, verse 7, when Paul is gathering uh, with the church, first day of the week, they're going to break bread, and he's speaking to them. He, he, he's going till midnight. So 45, 60 minutes, we, <laughs> we're, we're good with that. Um, but praise God, an opportunity to be together, unpack the Word of God, and he was there unpacking truth to them, testifying and exhorting. That word for testifying here is a Greek word, uh, dia martyrata. Now, I call your attention to that because martyrata would be the word that's used for testifying. But the fact that there's this preposition in front of it compounds it. It essentially intensifies it. That's why in some translations you'll get the idea of earnestly testifying or something like that. So he is earnestly testifying. He's bearing witness of the need for people to repent, to be saved from that perverse generation. Before we speak about that, I want you to see again, because I think this is important. Peter wasn't being cruel. He wasn't being mean. He was being honest and he was being forthright. And he spoke with courage and conviction. He spoke with courage and conviction. I think that's one of the most important things for us to realize as New Testament Christians, that if the Holy Spirit has filled us, if He is indwelling us, one of the witnesses of being filled with the Holy Spirit is going to be a bold witness for Christ. That's not to say you're not going to have moments that you don't struggle with that, but you nonetheless want to pursue that. And sometimes people might receive it in ways that you don't think they're going to receive it. They might receive it positively that you spoke in such a forthright way. I think one of the stories about this uh, that illustrates this in church history was the story of a, of a Methodist preacher. 
Um, this was before the Methodist church had gone away from the gospel and embraced uh, apostasy and so on. But he lived in the late 1700s, lived for a decent portion of the 1800s. His name was Peter Cartwright. He was an itinerant preacher for much of his ministerial life. So he'd go to different places and he would preach. He was an abolitionist. He fought for the abolition of slavery. He was involved in politics. Interestingly enough, he challenged and beat Abraham Lincoln for a seat in the Illinois legislature. Um, so that's a little bit of information that I had come across. He was somebody who was known for his bold preaching. Sometimes maybe shocking, sometimes even ab- abrasive, sometimes even offensive. And I'm not telling you to embrace, embrace the abrasive or to embrace the offensive, but nonetheless he was known for his bold preaching. And one day while he was preaching at a church, President Andrew Jackson walked into the assembly. Now I've read different accounts and from his biography, uh, autobiography, he was talking about how he had read his opening scripture, uh, What Shall a Profit a Man If He Gains the World and Loses His Soul? And then around that time, Andrew Jackson had walked in and he was standing in the back and one of the elders, at least from Cartwright's account, had said something like, Andrew Jackson is here or President Jackson is here. And he got offended that the elder would be calling attention to that man as though it would change the course of what he was going to say. So he said something along the lines of, who is Andrew Jackson? And then he goes on to say something along the lines of, Andrew Jackson needs to repent, otherwise he will go to hell as somebody who's in like, you know, an unreached part of the world who doesn't believe the gospel. That's essentially the gist of what he was saying. Which kind of takes you back. You actually look at the language, and you could even read the language that he used, and like, I'm kind of offended at the language that he used, and so on. Later, Not that same day. I saw accounts that talked about him talking to President Jackson later that day. But according to his own biography, he said that it was the next day where he saw President Jackson. And he went up to him and the president reached out his hand or reached out his hands. And he said something along the lines of this. Mr. Cartwright, you are a man after my own heart. I'm very surprised that Mr. Mack, who apparently I guess was the elder who had kind of warned Cartwright that President Jackson was there. I'm very surprised at Mr. Mack to think I would be offended at you. No, sir, I told him that I highly approved of your independence, that a minister of Jesus Christ ought to love everybody and fear no mortal man. I told Mr. Mack that if I had a few thousand such independent, fearless officers as you were and a well-drilled army, I could take old England. So words, admittedly, when I read the account, words that would have shocked me. I think you could be bold and you could be gentle at the same time. You could be bold and you cannot be abrasive and so on. And that's what I would encourage you to be, right? I want you to be like that. But nonetheless, Andrew Jackson is sitting there. He has a Presbyterian upbringing and he hears those words and he appreciated the boldness. He's like, that's what a minister of Christ ought to be like. Love every man, but fear no man. That's the idea of what you want to be even as a Christian. You love everybody. You want to show kindness to everybody. You want to bless those who persecute you. You want to pray for your enemies. You want to be that kind of person. But at the same time, you want to have great boldness and great courage to speak the words of truth that men and women need to hear about who Jesus is and what He has done. I came across some more information. I'll just pass it along to you because I think it's, I think it's encouraging to hear uh, from different accounts that I read uh, later on in his life, one, one writer actually connected it with Cartwright's preaching. Uh, and maybe God used that, maybe he didn't, I, I don't know. I know he had a Presbyterian upbringing from another account, a praying mother. But uh, in his retirement, supposedly from what I read, Andrew Jackson repented and came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
According to one writer, on uh, May 29th, 1845, it was a few weeks before he died, he is recorded as saying to a friend, Sir, I am in the hands of a merciful God. I have full confidence in His goodness and mercy. He goes on to say, The Bible is true. I have tried to conform to its spirit as near as possible. Upon that sacred volume, I rest my hope for eternal salvation through the merits and blood of our blessed Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's where our hope has to be. In the merits and in the blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, back to the text. So Peter is exhorting those who are gathered there with many words and exhortations and a summation, kind of, of what he said at that point was, be saved from this perverse generation. It's a perverse generation. The Greek word for perverse that's used there is skalios. Skalios. It's from where we get, basically a Latinized form of that is where we get our word scoliosis, which speaks to a curvature of the spine. So this crooked generation, this perverse generation was a crooked generation. They weren't walking on the straight and right path. They were going in a crooked way. They were going in the wrong way. How do you know that? They crucified the Lord of glory. I mean, you know you're in a wicked and perverse generation if the generation in which you're living has God in the flesh come and dwell among them and they say, crucify Him. Not to mention they were under the sway of religious leaders, the scribes and Pharisees and so on who were like blind leaders who were leading the blind into a pit. They were leading them into a pit temporally. And you might say 70 A.D. was a temporal pit that was on the horizon. And when Peter's saying, be saved from this perverse generation, there was temporal judgment that was coming. They were on a collision course with 70 A.D. where the Romans would sack Jerusalem. But they also needed to be saved from that perverse generation because the blind were leading the blind not only into a temporal pit, but ultimately into the eternal pit, if you will, the lake of fire. And so they needed to be saved from that generation. They needed to come out from among them. So that's why Peter's basically saying, believe the gospel. Be baptized. Take that step. Make that step of separation. That there's a change that's happened in your life. That you're identifying with the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. More about that in a moment. Now, I've told you in past weeks, and I want to say it again, that, um, and I'll say it again in a moment as well, that baptism was part of Christianity 101. But I also want you to see that separation was part of Christianity 101. Separation from the world, right? Like, so baptism, part of Christianity 101, you believe the gospel, and then you come to the Lord Jesus Christ and you get baptized. You walk through the door of faith, and it's as though it's when you walk through the door, right on the other side, there's a pool of water. And you get baptized. But also I want you to see Peter is telling them here, be saved from this perverse generation. There's got to be some some bit of separation that happens. Not like in a weird cultish way, but in a biblically legit Christian way, as we'll see. Now this call to separation is, is something that's been observed by commentators, I think sometimes often forgotten in our day. Um, One commentator wrote, observe reader, Those that repent of their sins and give themselves up to Jesus Christ must evidence their sincerity by breaking off all intimate society with the carnal and wicked. Albert Barnes said, Those who are awakened should resolve at once to break off from their evil companions and unite themselves to Christ and His people. 
I'll say more about that and how I think that plays itself out in a moment. But I just want to remind you of this biblical call of separation that we see in the Scriptures. I mean, you see it even when the, the flood's coming, right? Noah looks crazy probably to the watching world as he's building an ark and he's calling the, that generation to repent and so on. He was a preacher of righteousness. You think about what Lot had to do. Lot had to leave and flee Sodom. His sons-in-laws didn't. They thought it was a joke that judgment was coming. So they stood there when Lot had to get away and Lot got away with his daughters. There was a call to separation. You see when Moses is on Mount Sinai and he receives the the tablets, but he goes down and what does he find? The people have corrupted themselves. They were corrupting themselves with their behavior and so on and they were worshiping a golden calf. Remember what Moses says to the people. He comes down from the mountain. He sees that the people were out of control. And he said, whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. Exodus 32, verse 26. We know the Levites would be those who would join themselves to Moses and so on. But again, a call to separation. There are other examples that I could give you. Psalm 119, verse 115. The psalmist said, depart from me, you evildoers, for I will keep the commandments of my God. In 2 Corinthians, I mean, you could begin at verse 14 of 2 Corinthians 6, but I'm just going to tell you what Paul said in verse 17. Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. There needs to be separation. And again, I don't mean in some weird cultish way. The way I think it's, it's unpacked here in the Scriptures for us, it's the organic outworking of Christian living. What you're going to see in verse 42 is that the people steadfastly devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship with other believers, to breaking bread and celebrating the Lord's Supper and praying with other believers. So it wasn't in some cultish way. They just saw new life in Christ and they began to plug in to every opportunity that they had to hear the Word of God proclaimed, to fellowship with other believers, to pray with other believers, and besides their own responsibilities to their biological family, besides their responsibilities to their spiritual family, they didn't have time to do the sinful stuff that they were doing before, tracking with the same people that they were tracking with before. Their trajectory got changed. They didn't have the same things in common anymore. I've told you before, but I remember early on, because my interests changed when I came to the Lord Jesus Christ. My affections changed. My interests changed. And I remember people saying to me, I feel like I don't know you anymore. I'm in love with Christ. I still love you, but i got to go in this direction. i got to follow Him. Wednesday nights, i got to be there. Thursday nights, i got to be there. Sunday mornings, i got to be there. I've got places I've got to be. I want you to be a part of it, but I have new affections. I can't go where we used to go. I can't do what we used to do. I need to go in this direction. We don't have certain things in common anymore. And even the mundane things. I can't just sit and play video games all day. (laughs) I've got things to do. You want to be thinking like that. See, it was organic. There was a legit separation, not in some weird cultish way, but there was a new heart with new affections. There was a new family, spiritually speaking, and they still had responsibilities to their biological family, and they were committed. So I just want to remind you, I want to remind you, there's great danger that's facing you if you do not separate from your worldly entrenchments. Oftentimes, from subjective, my subjective analysis experientially, That one of the things that I've seen in my years of ministry, being a Christian involved in some way, shape, or form of volunteering in Christian ministry, going back to 2002, it's almost as though you are rolling the dice. When somebody professes faith in Jesus Christ and keeps their worldly relationships, 
right, somehow justifies going here, doing this, doing that. Meanwhile, they don't have much interaction at all with other Christians. It's like a roll of the dice. And from my experience, my own subjective evaluation in about 20 years of doing ministry is that it's often a matter of time until they drift away. Because you, because you just don't see, you don't see the Scripture clearly telling you you're not supposed to do that. Meaning, you're not supposed to have this yokedness with those that you are no longer sharing the same things in common with. You love and you serve and you help in any ways you can, but you now are on a different trajectory. You've got to serve the Lord Jesus Christ and you've got to serve others in Jesus' name and you can't be getting involved in the things that you got involved with once. You can't be making excuses to go here, to go there, to do this or to do that. Well, I want to remind us, that generation was a crooked and perverse generation. But just be reminded, you don't need me to tell you this, but we too live in a crooked and perverse generation. I think every generation that's lived in this fallen world has. Though the degrees of depravity that one culture may find, one society may find, can of course deepen. But you too need to come out from amongst the world and those worldly ties and be united to the Lord Jesus Christ practically in commitment to his local church. Let me just say a little pastoral counsel for you. I, I, I don't, in my early Christian life, I don't even know if I had read that, but it was just such a joyful thing to have fellowship with other Christians. I couldn't wait for it. I'm like, you, you, there's something on Wednesday night? This is great. I don't know any other Christians. I, I, I came to faith in Christ, and I'm like, the only people that I know are Christian are in this church. So when I talk to people, people that I've cared about, people that I've loved, and they don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm like, where are the people that do know the Lord Jesus Christ? Ah, oh, they're here in this church. They get together on Wednesday night? What are they doing on Thursdays? There's a choir? I could be in the choir. <laughs> There's nobody your age in the choir. That's okay. I just want to be around people that love the Lord Jesus Christ. I will join the choir. I want to stay later at church. Anything I could do? I mean, you can clean the banisters and you could vacuum and like, you know, you could vacuum the stairs and stuff. I will do it. I will gladly do it. Because you just want to be around. So I, I would tell you, if you feel like, if you feel me saying this and you're like, oh, there's a burden. He's trying to get me at more things. <laughs> Don't go to prayer. Right? Because the last thing that I want to happen, so to speak, is a bunch of Christians who feel begrudgingly like they have to attend this Wednesday night's prayer meeting and this Thursday night's class because I kind of bullied them into it. I'm not trying to bully you into anything. I'm just trying to set before you a beautiful paradigm to be excited about it. To be excited about it. Well, um, verse 41, we get to see a little bit more of the reaction on this day. We're told, Then those who gladly received His word were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 souls were added. Uh, you'll see italicized, added to them. Uh, added to that assembly of the 120 and so on. So we are told here um, that those who gladly received His Word were baptized. Okay, who were those who gladly received His Word? Well, they were the ones that had their eyes open to the Gospel to use language from Psalm 110, verse 3, they were made willing in the day of Christ's power. And they came, they received the word with a new heart, and they were made willing that day. They came out of the grave spiritually, they were graciously called, and they gladly received. I think the language there gets at the idea of what's going on in the text. The Greek word that's used there, apodekamai, 
does speak to welcoming someone. You ever have someone over your house? Maybe you did this more when you were kids. Maybe you still do it as an adult. And you're excited when people are coming over. Right? Kids tend to do this a little bit more than adults do. Uh, but they look out the window and they're like, oh, so-and-so's here. They're coming. And they get excited. And then what do they do oftentimes? They'll go to the window. They'll see somebody's coming, get excited about it. And what will they do? They'll go to the door. And then they'll wait for them to come in. Like, this is, exci- this is exciting. They're here. I see that they're here. Let's go to the door. Well, I'm going to welcome them in. That's kind of the picture that's being painted here. They gladly received. Their hearts were made new. And they gladly welcomed the word that Peter had preached to them. In the kids' bulletin, you could look at the kids' bulletin, you could see uh, what kind of facial expression better, best describes how they received the word that Peter preached. And it wasn't a sad face, so I'll give you that hint. I do want to say this, a little bit of a theological point here. They gladly received the word, right? I want you to remember this. Watch, watch how this nuances itself in the word of God. When you look at Jesus' Jesus's parable of the soils, we know that those who have no root, they immediately receive the word with joy. But they have no root. You can see the examples of that in Mark 4, 16 and 17. Luke chapter 8, verse 13. They receive the word with gladness, but have no root in themselves, and they only endure for a short time. Interestingly, what we see about these who gladly receive the word is the next description that we get in verse 42. They continued steadfastly. It's as though you see that this was the real thing. This is kind of like the joyful Thessalonian reception of the Word of God. And the evidence that they truly did receive the Word of God was the fact that they continued in the Word of God. How do you know that you believed the Word of God some years back? Do you believe it today? (laughs) It's one of the best witnesses that you have. If you believe it today, then you can be assured that at some previous time, you did believe it. Um, Note that those who gladly received his word, were baptized, okay? A little bit here, okay? Who were the people that were baptized? Was it people that had somebody else baptize them? Or was it people who gladly received the word that Peter preached? Was it people who got baptized because somebody else wanted them to do it without their will or awareness? Or was it people that gladly received his word? I mean, this is in a context, by the way, arguing for a baptism, believer's baptism. This is in a context, by the way, where Peter had said to them, the promise is for you and for your children. Yet those who are baptized are those who gladly received his word. So this would be one of the arguments, one of the many arguments that we would use for believer's baptism. Those who were baptized were those who said, I believe, and now I want to get baptized as that step of obedience. And that day, they publicly embraced the cost of becoming a Christian. You know, at at, at that day, it wasn't like you would have a whole bunch of your family members showing up, clapping for you when you got baptized. Yeah. Nobody, nobody in your Jewish family, unless they came to faith in Christ, they weren't saying, let's go out for a meal after your baptism. <laughs> they were saying, you're not coming to meals anymore. Not necessarily everyone, but people were ostracized for their faith in Christ. And these people publicly embraced the cost. Even though they were going to be likely separated from their communities to some degree, separated from the synagogue, maybe even separation undergoing in, to some degree in their families and so on, 
they publicly embraced the cost of identifying with the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. And notice the church in that day went from 120 to 3,120. What a great administrative issue for the apostles to have on that day. From 3,000 to 3,120. Now there are, there are different um, suppositions as to how they facilitated all of the baptisms. And you could see uh, different things. A.T. Robertson had noted, one commentator referenced him as saying that there were numerous pools in Jerusalem that afforded ample opportunities for wholesale baptizing. Others talk about there being just different uh, mikvahs. You can see this, for example, in the MacArthur Study Bible. Different mikvahs, places for washings in the southern um, area of the Temple Mount. And these could potentially have been used to facilitate the baptisms. I say that to say there were different ways to facilitate this within that immediate area and within the area not too far from there. Pool of Bethesda and so on. So on that day, 3,000 people were baptized. Again, I'm just going to say this. It's my responsibility to you. If you haven't been baptized, would you make my day? (laughs) Come up to me. Come up to Pastor Joe after the message and say, I want to be. When can I be? Oh, I would love, you want to know an administrative problem that we would love to have here? An administrative problem that we would love to have is figuring out who is going to mobilize to help us set up the baptism so that we could have baptisms ready on a regular basis. Pray for that. All it's going to take for that to happen is a number of people by the grace of God coming to faith in Christ and then saying, I want to be baptized. And then it behooves us to live what we're preaching to you. To say, okay, we're not going to wait three months. We want to facilitate this. Is that profession of faith real? Let's talk about it. Let me hear you articulate it. Let's go. Let's go. Okay, so now we get to the beginning of this um, beautiful description in the, in the local church. Verse 42, um, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. You want to note this. I would encourage you to have this committed to your memory. What did they continue steadfastly in? There's four things right there. Kids, it's in your bulletin too. You want to have this in your mind. They committed themselves to four things. Adults and kids alike, they committed themselves to the apostles' doctrine. They committed themselves to fellowship. They committed themselves to the breaking of bread. We'll talk about what that means in a moment. And they committed themselves to prayer or to the prayers. I want you to note, they didn't get saved and isolate themselves watching sermons on YouTube. They had a family that they were joined to. As one commentator, Benson, noted, let it be observed here, they who are joined to Christ ought to join themselves to the disciples of Christ and be united with them. So let's look at these four things. We'll kind of walk through these um, and get a better understanding of them. But first, I want to call your attention to the Greek verb that is used at the beginning of verse 42. Our English words uh, continued steadfastly come from a Greek word that basically means to persist in, to persevere in. Could be to attend to one side. It's as though you're kind of sticking close to a certain thing. So they stuck close to these practices. They persevered, which I think to some degree we would understand would mean that they faced difficulties in continuing to attend to these things. Please know, 
you will face difficulties if you try to stay the course in participating in these, these, these things in a local church. But they persisted in them. They practiced consistency even though it would be challenging. Now, I'm going to say this on the front end because I think it's helpful. I think for everybody in this room, I think if you come to a point today by God's grace where you decide even right now that these commitments will be commitments of mine, and you pre-decide in the moment, like right now, to say, I am going to commit to these things, rather than saying, you know, when it comes up, I'll just kind of play it you know, by ear when it comes. I would encourage you to figure out what it looks like in your Christian life to be committed to these very things, and then decide in this moment, by the grace of God today, to say, as much as it lies within me, I want to be committed to these things. I think sometimes if you leave it for tomorrow, then all of a sudden it's going to just fall by the wayside and then the things of life are going to come in and so on. And it might be harder to stick to those um, pursuits. All right, first we're told they continued in the apostles' doctrine. More literally, uh, in the apostles' didache, the apostles' teaching. And this makes sense. Now think this through. They had just come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Many of them knew about the miracles that he did, but they needed to better understand who they was. They believed what Peter preached, that he is Lord and Christ, but there was so much more to learn. So the apostles continued to teach them. What did the apostles teach them? Probably what the apostles themselves learned from the Lord Jesus. When he opened up the law and the writings and the Psalms, and he showed them all the things in it which pointed to himself. So they probably did that. Don't forget that the Great Commission that Jesus gave them included teaching men to obey everything I've commanded you. So they were probably talking about who Jesus was, how you could see who he was in the Old Testament. They were probably sharing things that we would come to know from the Gospel accounts. How he calmed the sea with his words, peace, be still, and so on. And they probably unpacked for them the commandments that they were expected to obey as Jesus' disciples. They were doing their due diligence. And remember, this would become part of the foundation of the New Testament church. The church was built upon the foundation of the New Testament apostles and prophets. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. Now what about for these people, right? These people became lifelong learners of biblical truth. They committed themselves, they persisted in learning apostolic doctrine. It's as though the other classes of life, while not without use or purpose, were all electives in comparison to these core classes of Christianity. And they committed themselves to this. They continued in learning. Uh, As one minister said, the church became an equipping center. That's part of what's happening right now. You are being instructed. Over these past weeks, you've been instructed about many things with regards to Pentecost, with regards to baptism, with regards to who Christ is and how to make a case for who Christ is. When you come to corporate worship, it is first and foremost corporate worship, but it's also a time of equipping. I would encourage you, use these moments. Imagine if you treated this like an equipping session. Every week, 52 weeks out of the year, you're saying, I'm going to be equipped today. I'm going to learn. I'm going to assimilate the truths that I've heard. Imagine how much more Christian doctrine you would know if you did that and treated these moments like that. It's exciting. You can start doing that to a greater degree this very day. Um, One minister put it like this. 
He said, there was no hint of anti-intellectualism. These new Christians did not disdain theology. They did not badmouth doctrine in favor of experience. They did not suggest that because they received the Holy Spirit, He was the only teacher they needed, and they could therefore dispense with human teachers. I mean, these are people who just, you know, had the Holy Spirit poured out on them on the day of Pentecost, and yet here they are, continuing steadfastly to learn so that their minds would be renewed. They cleave to sound doctrine. There's so much more I could say about this. If you were to look at 1 Peter 1, you'd find out that we're begotten again by the Word. You look at 1 Peter chapter 2, you see that the Word of God nourishes the new life it begat. You see that working itself out right here in Acts chapter 2. It was the preaching of the Word that led to new life through the Holy Spirit. And then what do they continue in? They're nourished in that same Word. And they're growing as they're nourished in that Word. And remember, just a reminder from past weeks, one of the means, primary means, I would argue, of being filled with the Holy Spirit, when you look at Colossians 3.16 and you compare it to Ephesians 5.18, letting the Word of Christ dwell in you richly is a means to being filled with and under the influence of the Holy Spirit. They were continuing steadfastly in biblical doctrine, in apostolic doctrine. Second, notice that they continued steadfastly in fellowship. Koinonia. Koinonia. Okay, root word there is a Greek word koine. Now you're probably more familiar with this word than you realize. You've heard me say or others say before that the New Testament was written in what? Koineia. Koine Greek. Koine Greek is common Greek, right? It wasn't classical Greek, it's the common Greek. So when you look at the word koinonia, what it means is common participation in a thing, a shared interest in a thing. So they had fellowship, a kind of shared interest, a sharedness of life with other Christians. They had koinonia, fellowship with one another. And the reason why they would have practical fellowship, like being with one another, a kind of shared life together, is because they had so many other things that they shared. They had the same fellowship of the Holy Spirit, to use language from 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14. They were partnering together, to use language from Philippians 1.5, in the same gospel. Like Paul rejoiced in the fellowship, the koinonia he had with the Philippians from the first day that he was with them all the way up until the time of writing that letter to the Philippians for their fellowship in the gospel. Like we're in this together. We have, we have a shared Lord. We have a shared Father. We have a shared authority. It's the Word of God. We have shared interest in one another. They had shared interest in one another as we're going to see in very practical ways. They shared their goods with one another. We're going to see that in verses 44 and 45. So they shared life together because they had all these other things that they shared together. Shared mission, shared purpose, and so on. So again, one of the things that you're seeing is that in the New Testament church, it's not just that they separated from what they needed to separate from. They committed themselves to what they needed to commit to. And that involved having koinonia, a sharedness of life with other believers we got the same mission. Let's figure out how to get the gospel out. we got a whole bunch of people around us that need to be served. Let's figure out how to do this together. Like, like the whole idea of them kind of like swooping in and being together for a little bit while somebody said a message and then kind of swooping out and just continuing life completely separate from all the people that they just spent two hours with or something like that was unknown to these Christians. Like they were with one another. 
right? They didn't treat the, the Sunday morning service like a drive-in movie. You know, kind of pull in, and I'll kind of like pull out. No, no, that's not what it was like. They were saying, we are in this together. We're going to do life together because we have a shared mission, shared purpose. Let's figure out how to bring the gospel to places. Let's figure out how to minister to people who are in need. Let's do this together because we have this shared mission. Let's talk about the word of God. Let's, let's have our conversations be about the things of life, of course. But let's talk about those things of ultimate purpose as well. Let's build one another up. Let's pray for one another. I do think, by the way, that part of the way their koinonia worked, their fellowship worked, showed itself in being under teaching together, praying together, and breaking bread and celebrating the Lord's Supper together. I think that's a big part of how their koinonia worked itself out, though we're going to see more of this description as we go on in, um, in this chapter. What else did they commit themselves to? They devoted themselves to, they continued steadfastly in the breaking of bread. The breaking of bread. Now, this is language that can be used to refer to a common meal together. This language can refer to that. But this is also language that can refer to the Lord's table. It's kind of a language that you'd see used in somewhere like 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16, uh, where there's a Lord's table connotation there. Likely, Acts 20, verse 7, has a Lord's table connotation. Because on the first day of the week, the church came together to break bread. And the idea is probably there that within the context of an ordinary meal, called the agape meal, they were also breaking the bread that represented the body of the Lord Jesus Christ being given for them. They devoted themselves to this. They were committed to it. I think this is a great argument here for increased frequency for the Lord's table. I think it's a great argument here. But nonetheless, it should be a resolved commitment of every Christian to devote themselves to the Lord's table. Jesus said, do this. Do this in remembrance of me. One of the crazy things about not being joined to a local church, one of the many crazy things about not being joined to a local church, yet professing faith in Christ, is completely abrogating responsibility to that commandment. Jesus said, do this. Participate in the Lord's table. Remember my blood that was shed. Remember my body that was given. Remember the benefits that you received, the new covenant in my blood, and that it's been ratified, and now you get the benefits of the new covenant because of my sacrifice for you. It's a blessing for you. Jesus wants you to be reminded that you are welcome at the table. You've been accepted by his merits and by his blood. And of course, the church should be gospel-centered in all of the preaching that goes on. But this was part of the way in which the church stood gospel-centered as well. You keep celebrating the Lord's table, you can't get away from the gospel. Because you've got to unpack what the significance of the body represented by the bread and the significance of the blood is represented by the uh, fruit of the vine, what the significance of those things are. They committed themselves to those things, to the Lord's table, and to breaking bread. Fourth, they were devoted to, and they continued steadfastly in prayers. Prayers, or more literally, the prayers. I think this can kind of be a kind of a catch-all way to describe their prayer commitment. Most immediately, I would say in a corporate sense, their corporate times of prayers. We'll see a little bit more of this as we get into Acts chapter 3. It seems like they observed some of those times that they were so used to observing. In the Jewish culture, you had three times during the day where you observed times of prayer. Um, 
We'll see that in uh, Acts chapter 3, the time of prayer that took place in the temple precincts at 9 a.m. But they were committed to times of prayer with one another. We see this kind of language in Acts chapter 1, verse 14. As the church was waiting for the day of Pentecost, they continued steadfastly in prayer. So whatever those times of commitment were, maybe there's implication individually as well. Of course, ultimately there is some measure of application to that. But they were committed to prayer corporately. And doubtless, I would say they were committed to prayer individually. With that being said, we will, Lord willing, continue this in two weeks and continue walking through this text. But I want to stop here by just calling your attention to a moment of application here. Because you have in Acts 2.42 a great, if you will, a kind of checklist that you could use today to say, am I doing what I ought to be doing as a New Testament Christian? Am I committed to the apostles' teaching? Biblical doctrine. Right? By virtue of you being here, that shows commitment. You want to apply that personally, right? You want to be reading the Scriptures as well personally. But you want to say, okay, am I, am I committed to this? And how could I utilize this time for the equipping that I know God has purposed it for? Equipping the saints to do the work of the ministry. Maybe it's I take notes. Maybe it's I listen to the message when it goes up on sermon audio. Maybe I listen to it again on the live stream. But I want to be equipped. I want to grow in understanding. And then you say, how am I doing by way of being steadfastly committed to fellowship? I mean, you think about the first, the first thing, right? Apostles' doctrine. That's why we try to provide the different things that we do, right? Sunday school, Pastor Joe going through Romans. Sunday mornings, us walking through the text of Scripture together. You know, Thursday nights, every other Thursday night, going through doctrines of grace, soon to be eschatology, other things that we've covered in the past. Our Wednesday small group, which is a time of fellowship, but it's also a time of learning. So you have all these different opportunities, which are often times of learning and times for fellowship. How are you doing with fellowship in the local church? Maybe you say, well, that's somewhere I need to grow. I love the Lord Jesus. I love his people. But I just need to be more intentional about making it a priority to be with other Christians. It's a blessing. I mean, you know, the, the reason why a lot of us hang out here late is not because we have to. We want to. It is fun. We're fun people. <laughs> we are. Some of us. No, <laughs> no. I'm joking. I'm joking. It's an amazing. Uh, when I look at this, when I, when I look at this church, honestly, I could tell you, any person I get to speak with in this local assembly, it is a it is a blessing. I think every person who comes here and ends up just being here by God's grace. Honestly, I'm just even surveying the room right now. It's such an honor to be able to fellowship with you all. And I do think, I'm saying this honestly, I do think you all are a blessing and enjoy to be with. I'm not just saying it. I would not say that from the pulpit if I didn't think it was true. I have a clean conscience in saying that. I'm even surveying the room just to make sure. <laughs> like, he saw me. Like, I saw you, and I'm including you in that. It is. It's a blessing. So I would say maybe that's something you take away from today. I need to grow in being committed to times of being together with other Christians. I need to make that a priority. Maybe, it's part, maybe part of it is breaking of the bread. To say, I don't want to miss the days in which we're celebrating the Lord's table. You know, maybe something for us as a church is to say, you know, how can we be more intentional about increasing the frequency of the Lord's table? Something that I've told you before that I do think the evidence would point in that direction, although there's nothing explicitly said in the Scriptures, but I do think greater frequency is where the text points to. 
But you say, I just don't, if, I'm, if there's days I'm not missing, I'm making sure I'm not missing the times that we're celebrating the Lord's table. And what about prayer? What about prayer? I think it could change the way you look at our time of pastoral prayer during the service. Look at all the prayers that have been prayed today, right? How do you, how do you approach that? These are opportunities for you to be steadfastly devoted to those prayers that are being prayed during the Lord's Day. But then, of course, my mind and your mind probably goes to those Wednesday nights, those Wednesday nights of prayer. So it's a great checklist, I think, for us as a church, as corporate, uh, corporate church, but also as individuals. All right. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you so much, Lord. What an honor it is to be under your word. What an honor it is to see this beautiful picture painted of your church in those early days, those infant days of the New Testament church, Lord, and to see the beauty that is portrayed in these verses. Father, we know that uh, like an instrument that will need to be tuned regularly, so we need to be tuned in our hearts regularly. And even as a church corporately, Lord, we pray that you would use these texts that we've studied today, these verses, to impact our minds and our hearts. Lord, may you find us speaking the word with boldness, even as Peter did. Would you find, Heavenly Father, in this assembly, those who have come to the Lord Jesus Christ making those proper separations that they need to make in light of pursuing the things you've called them to pursue and forsaking that which you've called them to forsake. Father, we pray that you would bless us with baptisms, Lord, with individuals who are compelled by your Holy Spirit saying, I want to be baptized, I have come to faith in Christ, and we pray, Heavenly Father, that you would find us faithful to facilitate that. We pray, Heavenly Father, for increased measures of partnership in those things of the gospel and in serving one another and in serving uh, the, the lost and reaching the lost with the gospel and so on. Father, we pray that you would help us, Lord, in a, in, in a way, in a fresh way to commit ourselves to your word, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the Lord's table, sharing a meal with one another and remembering your son being given for our sins into those times of prayer. Oh, Father, may today be the beginning, perhaps, of a, of a glorious work of renewal as you just help us, Heavenly Father, be even further conformed to that local church that you would have us to be for your glory and for the great gospel that we proclaim based upon the merits and the blood of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.